out before that asteroid hits. Let's roll! Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express. I'd now like you to meet our boss, Walt Disney. Ladies and gentlemen, we apologize for the interruption in your regularly scheduled program. Due to technical difficulties, the WDW radio show will not be heard at this time. In its place, we bring you a special presentation of the Frontierland Knitting Hour. <laughs> Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Frontierland Knitting Hour. Today, we're going to be working on this here sweater I'm knitting for my good old horse, Bessie. She's over riding on the big Thunder Mountain mine train today, but while she's gone, I'm going to work on this sweater with y'all. Now, we start with knit one and purl one and knit one and purl one and knit one and then we work on the sleeves and knit one and <laughs> oh shucks we's just april fooling with you folks <laughs> and now it's time for lou mongello's wdw radio show your walt disney world information station <laughs> and hang on to them hats and glasses, folks, because this here's the wildest podcast in the wilderness. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in once again to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number eight for April 1st, 2007. This week's show has a little something for everybody. I've got a couple of pieces of news from Walt Disney World, some vacation planning information where I talk about Walt Disney World dining and discounts with Pam Forrester, one of the owners of the Magic for Less Travel, we're going to discuss the Disney Dining Plan, the Disney Dining Experience Card, and the recent rumors of free dining returning in 2007. For those of you interested in Walt Disney World trivia and history, Jeff Pepper and I are going to take a look at Disney's 3D and 4D films through history, in the theme parks, and looking into the future. I'm also going to answer your emails and voicemails, including talking about some Walt Disney World-related console video games, a secret spot over at the Disney MGM Studios, the past and future of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. And now, a WDW Radio Show News and Views Report. Live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. I have just two quick pieces of news in this week's news and views from Walt Disney World. And the first is that while some people seem to question Disney's decisions about how they celebrate anniversaries, or not in the case of Epcot, to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Disney's Wide World of Sports Complex, Disney's officials announced this week the planned construction of a 70,000-plus square foot arena. Known as the Jostin Center, it's going to have more than 44,800 square feet of competition space, including six basketball courts, 12 volleyball courts, 
two roller hockey rinks, four locker rooms, two conference areas, and two official rooms. This is going to more than double Disney's ability to host sports events. And if you don't think that they need the space down there, maybe because you've never been before, think about it this way. The Milk House, which is the complex's current facility, has only about 30,000 square feet of competition space. So it's really going to more than double what they have now. But the Milk House currently is booked 50 out of 52 weekends a year, and they have more than 180 events going on. So Disney clearly needs this space. Again, you may or may not have visited the wide world of sports, if unless you've seen maybe a basketball game or something uh, for kids like a Pop Warner game, cheerleading event, things like that. But uh, the center is very, very busy and the space is needed. And if you're wondering who Jostens is or if the name does sound familiar, think back to your old high school days or current high school days because they make uh, class rings, they make yearbooks, things like that. So that's where the partnership came to be for that. I'm going to link in the show notes to the Wide World of Sports page because you should go and check it out and find out exactly what goes on down at that portion of Disney. Finally, some details seem to be coming out about what the post-show at Spaceship Earth in Epcot is going to be. Carnegie Mellon Uh, The university's Entertainment Technology Center teamed up with Disney and Siemens, who is the sponsor of Spaceship Earth, to create basically a collection of arcade games. And it's going to be called Project Spaceship Earth for Disney's Epcot Center. Now, Siemens, as you know, is a technology company, and they, they have a wide variety of products, everything from communications to medical equipment, transportation, and power technologies. And these games are going to be part of the post show are going to offer, quote, a fun and exciting look at how Siemens technologies make our lives better. And it's going to be a space occupying about 9,000 square feet, and there's going to be a lot of exhibits that and games that have to deal with healthcare, transportation, energy, things like that. Now, the interesting thing is it appears that these games are going to be focused uh, for the attention of people between the ages of 10 and 14, who are expected to spend about a half hour or so in this area to get an idea of what the Siemens company is all about. Now, while this does answer some questions about what the post-show is going to be like, I'm not sure if this is going to encompass the entire area. Uh, It does seem to be appealing to the tween set rather than adults, which I think is interesting. I wonder if there is going to be something there for older guests to do and enjoy, uh, you know, above and beyond just the arcade game. So time is going to tell on this. Um, Again, this this may just be part of the post-show area. I'm looking for more details to emerge within the coming weeks. Of course, if you hear anything about either of these pieces of news, any other rumors, or anything else you'd like to share, send an email to lou at wdwradio.com. Leave us a voicemail at 206-202-4WDW or talk about it in the message forums at disneyworldtrivia.com. You hear me speak often about the best of the best at Walt Disney World. And you know by now how much I enjoy eating throughout the Walt Disney World Resort. Uh, From the theme parks to the resorts to downtown Disney, the options are extensive and they really run the gamut for every palette and budget. And they offer some of the best dining experiences anywhere in the world. And I don't just mean Disney World, but, you know, the Earth, the whole planet world. So... People often voice their opinions, and sometimes strongly, about their feelings about Disney, you know, trying to squeeze out every cent of them, or nothing is ever free, and things are so expensive when you go. And while I wholeheartedly disagree, uh, I think that some of these folks may just not know about two offerings from Disney 
which not only contradict that thinking, but coming soon are going to fly in the face of the argument altogether. Because not only can you save money on food at Walt Disney World, and lots of money actually, but how can you argue about when it's free? You can't. But in case you can, and the lawyer in me comes out, I have enlisted the help of our resident expert, Pam Forrester, who is the owner of the Magic for Less Travel, to help me plead my case. Pam, welcome to the WDW Radio Show. Thanks so much for having me on again, Lou. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming back. And Pam, obviously, we're going to talk about the Disney dining plan. Um, And this is something that I mentioned briefly last week, that there is a rumor about the dining plan coming back in its free form uh, later on this year. So I wanted to have you come on. I think what I want to do is really kind of introduce people to the dining plan, tell them about it a little bit more. We'll talk about the free dining as well as one of the other options um, that uh, that Disney offers that maybe people don't know on how they can save for food. So the, just real quickly, uh, a little brief history. The dining plan was introduced, I believe, in 2006. It was an add-on option to Walt Disney World guests booking uh, Magic Away packages. So I, what I want to do is kind of go through what it really is, um, because I think, you know, even though you may be listening to the show, you're probably a big Disney fan, but not everybody really knows all about it and all the details and intricacies. So, um, you know, I, I talk to people sometimes about this when they're going. I ask them if they're doing the dining plan, and some people kind of give me that same look that they do when I'm saying that I'm going to Disney World for my seventh time this year. So, <laughs> Pam, let's kind of start at the beginning and kind of tell us a little bit about what, what the Disney dining plan really is. Well... Um, The Disney Dining Plan was uh, initially offered when the Magic Your Way packages started. Um, It was an add-on that they could put with the plan. So basically, you have to be purchasing a Magic Your Way package. And packages include your room and tickets of at least one night or more and things like that. So it's not something that can be added on to a room-only reservation. For people who have APs or things like that, this won't, you know, really apply to them. Um, the other, there's also kind of um, another group of people who can take advantage of the Disney Dining Plan, and that's DVC members. They can also add that to their room-only reservation, but they're the only ones. So anyways, back to the Magic Your Way package. If you purchase a Magic Your Way package, you can add on the Dining Plan, and the Dining Plan is... per adult per night and $10.99 per child per night. And that's kind of important to remember that it's per night, not per day. When you purchase that, you will get one table service meal, one quick service meal, and one snack for each night of your vacation. So when you start thinking about how much food costs at Disney World, this could be a really great option for convenience and for savings sake. Now, when you when you say table service meal, quick service meals, you're not just talking about an entree. You get a full, you get an appetizer, entree, dessert. Uh, if it's a buffet, you get a buffet and a non-alcoholic beverage, correct? Right. For the table, table service meal, you'll get um, an appetizer, entree, non-alcoholic beverage, and a dessert. For the quick service meal, you get... A combo meal or an entree, a non-alcoholic beverage, and a dessert. And a snack is basically um, like an ice cream bar, a box of popcorn, or pretty much any drink or snack that's under $4. Um, And the other good thing to mention about this is it includes tax and it includes your gratuity for your table service meal. So that's a huge 
you know, that's a huge savings there for people. Sure, and like you said, the um, the snack items, normally if you go to the cart, you'll see like a little purple square. That that designates it as a, a dining plan option, correct? Yes, yes. This year, Disney seemed to get, you know, with the program <laughs> here and uh, trying to make things easier for everyone and identify those snack items, which, you know, can, for some people, that can be even a light meal if you're getting, um, like a muffin that could be breakfast so that's just you know one of the ways that you can use the program i think one of the misconceptions too about the plan and the use of the credits is number one how you first keep track of your credits look i have a tough enough time balancing my checkbook let alone keeping <laughs> a track of all right i have two table service left can you use can you kind of mix and match when you use them or do you have to use you know one table service one quick service one snack per day this is one of the great things about the plan because Disney really was looking out for the guest when they designed this plan. This plan is completely flexible. Say your first day that you arrive, you're not getting until midnight. So clearly you're not going to want to use anything that day. But the next day you want to have two table service meals and only one snack. You're completely free to do that however you want. You can mix and match until midnight of the day that you check out. And another good benefit is they keep track of the number of meals that you have left. For instance, when you pay for your table service meal for dinner that night, on your receipt, it will show you how many table service meals you have remaining. So that's good for all of us who don't want to think too much on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Let Disney keep track of that for you. (laughs) Now, Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just trying to think of, you know, I think one of the big pluses about the plan, too, that a lot of people don't think about is the convenience of paying for it in advance. And I don't think I'm the only one that likes to pay. I like to pay for as much as I can before I go. Um, I don't. I like to have kind of a rough budget. And sometimes it's difficult to nail down that budget, especially the food cost, because you never know where you're going to be or what that's going to cost. But with the dining plan, you can do that. Um, That gives you a good idea of budget. It gives you something that, you know, you can pay for in advance and not worry about when you check in. And I love things like that. And I think most guests do too. Yeah. Well, plus you saw, you also don't get the the credit card shock when you go home too, because you know, (laughs) you know what you've paid for already because it can get expensive. And um, later on in the conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about what the actual savings really end up being. But I wanted to go back a little bit about the actual use of the credits because there are some caveats to it. There are some dining establishments on property. And I guess we should mention that not every single restaurant takes the dining plan, but there are, you know, 100 plus that actually do. Right, they are. And I know just for instance, when someone books with us, we send them a list of all the restaurants and try to help make that that transition a little easier, help them decide where to go. But it is something that you that does require the guests to pre-plan just a little bit. And especially if free dining does happen again um, this fall, I suggest making your priority seating arrangements as soon as possible because um, that way you can get a jump on it. There will be a lot of people using the dining plan, a lot of people um, eating at all the table service restaurants. So that's a great time to make use of the advanced dining arrangements. Um, but something there are what are called signature um, restaurants, which actually require two table service credits to eat there. 
Um, those will be your more expensive signature dining restaurants like Jico in Animal Kingdom or um, Narcoosie's at the Grand Floridian or, you know, everyone's favorite, Cinderella's Royal Table. But these are expensive meals. Um, these are meals that are, you know, where your entree is going to, to start, you know, at, in the high $20 range and things like that. So even requiring two credits, because you get an entree and an appetizer and a dessert and drink and gratuity and tax are included, you can still, you know, take good use of the dining plan when dining at a signature restaurant. And like it's, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link up in the show notes to a, a PDF that Disney puts out that kind of really outlines all of the Disney dining plan details and also gives you a list of all those signature restaurants. So, you know, it kind of has a little matrix of all the locations and restaurants because you're right. Things like California Grill is in there. Um, right. Uh, Flying Fish Cafe, one of my favorites on the boardwalk is in there. But something exactly. else that, that's of note is that the... Those restaurants are not the only places that take two credits. You can also use it for in-room dining, but that's also two credits? That's also two credits, and some of the Grand Gathering experiences also take two credits. But if you're part of a Grand Gathering, and that's a group of eight or more traveling together, um, you get access to some really special events that only groups can have access to. So I would, you know, I feel that the two credits would probably be worth that. I've done the safari celebration dinner at Animal Kingdom, had a great time. Food was great. The guides were great. The tour was great. I would definitely use two of my table service credits for that. And you could also use them for other um, special things like um, some of the dinner shows like Spirit of Aloha, Backyard yeah. Barbecue, hoop de doo Hoop-de-doo. <laughs> it's a must-do. It's a must-do. People laugh, but you got to do the hoop-de-doo at least once. You do, and you know what? That's a classic Disney, a classic <laughs> Disney event. I, you have to do it at least once. I, I agree. Um, there are a couple, like I said, a couple other caveats that I just want to mention because not every hotel does participate in a dining plan. The Swan, Dolphin, Shades of Green, and the Downtown Disney Resorts on Hotel Plaza Boulevard do not participate because they are not owned and operated by Disney. Uh, right. But every other Disney hotel, as long as you're staying there, as long as you purchase your Magic Way vacation package, you are eligible for the plan, correct? Right, you are. And it's actually coded on your little uh, key to the world cards that you'll get when you check in. So you don't have to carry something around or, you know, it's nothing extra to carry around. It They make it very convenient for you. So, Right, and a couple of things that, that you should note too. Um, the plan does not include alcoholic beverages. Um, there right. are a couple of locations that don't um, that don't honor the plan. And I'm going to put all these things up in the show notes. I'm going to put a link over to uh, the Mouse for Less where you guys have a good description of everything going on as far as the, the plan is concerned. And the other kind of you, – you touched on this briefly um, – is that while the dining plan is a great thing, you do have to be aware that you – because of its so pop, because of its popularity, you can't necessarily walk into some of the more popular restaurants without making a reservation. Uh, you really need to book your dining reservations as early as possible, especially for dinner and during you know peak dinner hours. Yeah, and those character meals can get busy as well. I really suggest that um, with the Disney, if you're using the Disney dining plan, or if if you're planning on dining at Disney at all anymore, <laughs> you at least make a couple table service, sit down meal reservations. Um, you'll really do yourself a favor. And you know what, say what you wake up that morning, you don't want to go there. 
fine. Call and see what else is available. Or if worse comes to worse, show up at the resort. That's a big tip that I think everyone should know. Even when you call Disney Dining when you're down, even at the World, and they say, I'm sorry, there's no availability at all. If you show up at the restaurant as they're opening, chances are you'll probably get seated. So um, that's a trick that we tr we use a lot. So I'm not... Uh, you know, I guess this might shock a lot of people, but I'm not a huge planner when it comes to meals. <laughs> we try to, but part of it is because I don't really have time to plan my own vacation, but part of it is because we do change our plans and we, you know, we, tr we try to be spontaneous every now and then. So, um, that's one of the tricks that we use. And that, and that's the tough thing as you know, it's a two-sided sword, uh, because, you know, how do you know six months out? what park you're going to be in, what you're going to feel like eating, how the kids are going to be, what you want to do. So to kind of have to make those reservations so far in advance, except for a couple of special events, maybe like Cinderella's Royal Table, something like that, right. is tough. It's tough. And, you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes people make reservations, they don't cancel them. So you do try and make it, it looks like it's booked up. And then people, unfortunately, don't cancel 24 hours, 48 hours ahead of time. Um, this is a case where Disney really listened to the guests in this area because guests were wanting park hours to be released earlier and earlier. And now at the 180 day mark, Disney has been really good at releasing park hours. And that, um, and that also coincides with the um, date that you can make your advanced dining arrangements. So that's really helped guests, I think. All right. Now, the other thing, too, is I'm, I'm going to be honest. Um, when the dining plan was first announced way back when, what seems like a lifetime ago, I didn't necessarily subscribe to the idea because, number right. one, I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to keep track of what I was doing and would I have to spend money and eventually. And, you know, but what I've come to learn is you really do save. Not only is it very easy to use because it's a no brainer, but you do save. I mean, you can save really up to 40 percent uh, on, on meals. Yeah. Th it mean, there are. Bargains are few and far between at Disney World. I will say that. Not that it isn't worth every penny. It is. But if this is one of the best ways to save on dining at Disney World. Um, and there aren't, you know, there aren't that many ways to save on dining. And that's a huge expense. If you look at what $38.99 per adult really turns out to be. Um, one of one of the examples I love to give is just at something like the Crystal Palace. If you're just going to eat dinner at the Crystal Palace, that is going to cost you $27.99 before you get tax and before you get tip. That's one of the places you can go to. You can have your dinner meal at Crystal Palace. It's paid for. You also that day will have had a counter service meal and a snack. So there's no way that's not going to be worth more than $38.99 that day. You've already made money using the plan. Yeah, and again, I'm going to put links up in the show notes to the Mouse for Less because you have some very simple, you have three examples where you kind of break it down and you show exactly how it works out. For example, there's one and it talks about the family that goes to Mara for breakfast and then they you know, have snacks later on. They go to Kona Cafe for dinner. They purchased about $120 worth of food, and they paid $75 for it on the dining plan. Yeah, it is. It's. I mean, those are great savings. And the when if you have a child between three and nine, their cost is only $10.99 per night. So uh, one character meal, and you've more than made up the cost of that meal. I think for many people, this is a no-brainer. 
Now, I'm not going to say that this plan works for everybody because it doesn't. And do some research or get someone to help you do some research. But for the vast majority of guests, this is going to work for you. Right. And, and I think the, the thing that you have to remember is if you are a, you know, run through the park, counter service only, I'm not going to sit down for a table meal. It's probably not for you. But if right. you do want to enjoy a table service meal, and it's a great way to enjoy a table service meal for maybe a restaurant that you might not have thought, you know, you could kind of fit into your budget. Um, you know, one of the more expensive restaurants, you can use these credits now and go go to Le Cellier. You can go to, well, you can't go to Alfredo's anymore, but you can go to some of these other places, right. <laughs> you know, and enjoy it. And that's kind of where the balance is. And the only complaint that I've heard from people that use it is it's too much food or they yeah. don't use all the credits. And we should note, you have to use all your credits by, what do you say, midnight the day midnight that you check out. Midnight the day out. that you check out. But you don't have to eat all the food. And, you know, I actually had the chance to kind of experience the Disney dining plan. Um, like you, I wasn't sure about this. We... Uh, we vacation probably like a lot of people do. We're not always counter service, though. It, there comes a point in the day where I'm tired and I want to sit down and have someone bring me food. <laughs> I'm not really interested in eating at Pecos Bills yet again or something <laughs> like that. So, um, you know, finally, I broke down and I'm like, okay, we're going to try this. And we did. And I was really shocked because we enjoyed it. And um, I'll tell you one of the things that we did, uh, my daughter and I, a lot, especially with the table service credits. Um, when we would go to dinner, my daughter and I would split a table service credit in that I would pick an appetizer that um, she would like um, for her meal, probably, and then an entree that she would want some of, and then the two of us would split dessert. So that left us an extra table credit, which my husband and I used to eat at Jico one of the nights because we had built up enough table credits at that time. And Jico is a signature restaurant that requires two table credits. So that's how we use the extra table credits. And that way we didn't feel like we were stuffed every night. Nice. And then we got to pay for Jico, which was a big bonus. Yeah. Jico, Jico is one of those you know places that if you can do it, you, you must do it. It's I agree. that good. One and, of our uh, favorites. And be careful about talking about Pecos Bills over there. That's a favorite of mine. So... <laughs> I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it. don't want to eat there. <laughs> Why not? All right, anyway, real quick, you mentioned uh, one thing I, I don't know if we touched on. You You talked about your daughter and we talked about kids. Um, children three to nine have to choose from a children's menu, and children under three are free, correct? They do not need to get, um, you know, the Disney dining plan. Right, exactly. And they, do, you know... That, that price, that will be reflected in their package price. They won't need admission and they won't need the Disney dining plan. My daughter's going to stay two and a half until she's like 11. I'm going to keep her <laughs> nice, and, nice and small and petite. <laughs> yeah, but once she, you know, when she talks, then she can tell. <laughs> well, she's doing that now. She's like, how old are you? She's like three. I'm like, no, honey, you're, to Disney, you're two no. and a half. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, okay, so we, we, we kind of said in all fairness that, that the dining plan may not be for everybody uh, depending on how you go and it's also not for everybody because it might you might not be eligible for it now I for example am an annual pass holder so right. I, I cannot get the Disney dining plan which is unfortunate but there is another alternative um, Disney does have something else out there that um, although you can't get the plan will help you save money 
on dining. And again, it's something that maybe not everybody knows about. And that's the Disney Dining Experience card. It's wholly and separately differently from the Disney Dining Plan. Tell us a little bit about what the the DDE card is. Um, Can I just back up one second? Because I wanted to mention people with annual passes. Last year, when free dining was offered, it was such a good deal that many annual pass holders took advantage of the magic your way with free dining during that select travel dates and what they did was they bought a magic your way package but only got a pass for one day and using that strategy they were able to take advantage of the free dining and then use their annual pass so oh, now wait a minute now. so if i'm an annual pass holder going right. for a week mm-hmm. i can buy a magic your way package like a magic your way ticket for one day but still get the, the- dining plan for a week right if you buy let's say you're going to stay at a restaurant or at a, re- at a resort <laughs> i'm sleeping well, at pecos bills this week <laughs> right. yeah i'm not even going to mention pecos bills again <laughs> but say you're going to stay at a resort for seven nights um you can buy a magic your way package for seven nights but instead of getting a seven day hopper you can get a one day ticket and therefore, reducing your costs, reducing the cost of your package, but still being able to take a, take advantage of the free dining. Hmm. So uh, we had so many annual pass holders do that last year because just financially, it worked out. I mean, yeah. do the math, thirty eight ninety nine, you know, times four people. That, that's a lot of savings. So, Well, you know, here I am moving on to the Disney Dining Experience card. And part of the reason why I wanted you to come on this week was because I, I had I totally forget about this. I talked about last week the free dining possibly coming back. Um, right. That was offered last year. Wow. Right. Boy, talk about mental lapses here. Um, and the rumor is that free dining is coming back. Explain what, what this whole free dining thing is because it, it just sounds too good to be true. Well, first I must say, Lou, I cannot confirm or deny this rumor. (laughs) Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) I have heard that there will be a special package being offered soon for fall travel dates. But as of this point, I cannot say exactly what that is. But let's say that maybe it will be free dining. And free dining is really just a promotion that Disney offered last year during fall travel dates where if you bought a magic your way package at full price which you know they're all at full price <laughs> pretty much you got the dining for each member of your party added for free um and it was a great deal i i can't tell you how many people we had that took advantage of this offer i'm sure it introduced so many new people to the dining plan and it's a great way to try out the dining plan if you're not sure, um, you know, how the dining plan is going to work for your family, if you're going to like it, if you're going to hate it. This is a great opportunity to kind of test drive it because you aren't paying for it. Disney is. I was like, and how could you not like it if it's free? Exactly. <laughs> well, yes. What is not yeah. to like? I don't know, but <laughs> it's a great opportunity for people to save um, when you, you know, just multiply out the number of adults you have times thirty eight ninety nine per night and you'll see you know you'll see the savings right away so and they great all- deal i think you know lots of people will take advantage of it if it happens again this year and and a prime I mean, if you had to guess when did they offer it last year so people can kind of approximate when they think it may come back this year 
um, the travel uh, the travel dates they offered it uh, the uh, in August and September it may have extended a little bit into the beginning of October but um, I, I don't know and it started to be offered um, near the beginning of April um, so that the, that time's coming up and I know a lot of people are looking for it and um, you know, hopefully Disney will do it again this year. It it was very successful last year. Obviously, if that comes out, you know, word is going to spread like wildfire. And I, and I of course, we'll talk about it on the show. Good. <laughs> it will. <laughs> but uh, all right, let's let's go back to the Disney Dining Experience card and what um, what that can offer to you know annual pass holders and Florida residents. Okay. Um. I, you know, I Disney Dine Experience is something that I have. I'm an annual pass holder, of course. We travel to Disney too much to not be an annual pass holder. And the Disney Dining Experience was something that was, in the past, only available to Florida residents. Which, to me, never made much sense. I mean, if you check out my annual pass, I'm probably there as much as a lot of Florida residents are. <laughs> So um, Disney did, again, listen to guests and made that available to annual pass holders as well, um, which was great because this saves 20% off of your meals at a number of Disney restaurants. Most of them are table service um, restaurants, but the 20% is 20% off of your alcohol and everything else you've ordered. So it is a tremendous savings for annual pass holders and Florida residents. And what's the cost of the card? Cost is $60 for a year, um, which is incredible because uh, this is just, you know, a, a little tip I want to give out there <laughs> because this year we used our Disney dining experience discount at Victoria and Albert's. Now you would think that that must be excluded, but it is not. As long as you're not dining at the chef's table, you can use your Disney Dining Experience um, discount. And right there, the $60 was paid for in savings at Victoria and Albert's. Sure. And it was a great meal to boot. So um, you can just simply go on the Disney website and download a, an application, fill it out. It will ask for your annual pass number. So you must have an annual pass or an annual pass voucher in hand to get the Disney Dining Experience. Or you must be a Florida resident. Right. And it also offers a couple of, you also get uh, free valley parking and uh, they also have special events. I know that they have a special event coming up, I think, next month. A fishing, uh, yes, a fishing excursion that my husband has read about and <laughs> probably wants to experience. <laughs> Research trip. Research trip. Yeah. He's got to learn these. Or I got to have a talk with your husband. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they do. Um, they're really, they often give you advance notice about some of the events that are coming up, like when food and wine, it, you know, that's coming. You get some notice of that. And it's really a great deal. Another one of those great deals that um, I hope everyone's taken advantage of if they're eligible for it. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link up also in the show notes, uh, backing on over to the Mouse for Less, where you guys have uh, a list of all the restaurants that participate in the Disney Dining Experience card. I also have the card. Um, I, again, I think it's one of these things that, you know, especially for the amount of money that it costs for the $60, um, you know, there's no reason not to get it. And uh, you're right, you know, it, it, it's going to save you money the first two or three times that you use it, it's going to pay for itself. Absolutely. 
All right, well, I think um, I think we may have covered mostly everything. Like I said, I'm going to put some more links up into the show notes. I'm also going to put a link up to the Magic for Less Travel. Pam Forrester is the owner of that company. Uh, you've heard me talk about them for a long, long time. Hopefully you get a sense from, from hearing from Pam uh, about her and what she can do as far as helping to plan your Disney vacation. Remember, too, their services are completely free to you. And you can also contact Pam if you have any questions about anything we covered here or any of your upcoming trips to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, or the Disney Cruise Line. Absolutely. I'm happy to help any way that we can. Um, I really appreciate your having me on again, Lou. It's always fun to talk with you about some things like this. And um, it's Food. nice to hear from the people <laughs> from your podcast. Well, Pam, thank you very much again for coming on. Um, we'll definitely have you on again in the future. Again, Pam Forrester from The Magic for Less Travel, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Lou. Christy, how much time do we have left? Not much. Uh-oh, the audience is already seated. The subject for today is melody. A malady? Uh, like when you get sick? No. M-E-L-O-D-Y, melody. It's time to present Maestro Mickey Mouse and the Philharmagic Orchestra. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day you guys just don't seem to see us, so uh, that's why we gave you the special bug eyes. Now go, go ahead, put, put them on. Listen, the command considers us a bunch of losers, but we're gonna do it right this time because we're the best. We don't, we'll be drummed out of the core. So it's going to be a swell demonstration, and at no time will we be stooping to any cheap 3D tricks. I wanted to welcome back to the show Jeff Pepper. He's been on a number of times. We've done some Disney scene investigations as well as a couple of other segments on the show. Jeff, as you know, is the blogger over at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. Jeff, welcome back, buddy. Hey, good to be here, Lou. Thank you for having me back. Well, thanks for coming back on. And we're going to do something a little bit different this week. We are not going to do uh, our, our normal Disney scene investigation, kind of look back at attractions and things like that. We're going to uh, do something that, that may be a little bit timely as we are recording on March 30th. And today is the release of the Meet the Robinsons film. And uh, although this podcast is normally all about Walt Disney World, we are going to tie this in because Robinsons obviously is being released in 3D. And what we want to do is kind of talk a little bit about the history of some of Disney's 3D movies, the presence of 3D films in the parks now and in the past, and what the future might hold for 3D and, well, there I guess... 40 over at Walt Disney World. So, uh, Jeff, before we kind of move backwards and then forwards in all the different directions, you actually just came back from seeing Meet the Robinsons, right? Yes, I did. All right, give us your uh, give us your quick spoiler-free <laughs> review. <laughs> uh, I loved it. Uh, I really enjoyed it uh, very much. It it was very kind of very fast-paced, kind of throw all kinds of stuff at you. But at the same time, it was just very fun and spontaneous, and uh, it had it kind of snuck up on you at the end with the kind of the the emotional kind of you know hit where you know you kind of got all 
warm and fuzzy towards the end, and it it wasn't overly done, and I it, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I I liked it a lot, and I saw it in 3D. Um, I'm out here in the middle of North Carolina, and we never thought 3D would come to us. Um, you know, we're kind of a smaller market, <laughs> and we were shocked when the local theater started advertising it, and uh, we we saw it in 3D, and let me tell you, that was just incredible. I was very very impressed with the technology. I did not get to see. Nightmare Before Christmas or Chicken Little, um, like I said, as they didn't come here, and I was very, very impressed with that. Good. I'm happy to hear it because I have heard um, from early reviews they've been pretty much all positive, like you said, about not only the film and the emotional aspect of it and the technology, but uh, how good the 3D really is. And that's why you know you came to me with this idea, and I think it's great um, that we kind of cover not only where we are now, but kind of the the genesis of the 3D films from the Disney Company and bringing it back into the theme park. So why don't we kind of go, you know, before we go forward, let's go backwards and talk about the the beginning of 3D at Disney because I think most people might not realize it started a lot earlier than, than where they may be thinking at, at Chicken Little. Yeah, that's let's let's charge up that wayback machine. Uh, it's <laughs> we're going to go way back and we're going to go back to 53, 1953 and you know, in the mid 1950s, uh, Hollywood was really beginning to feel the effects of television. Um, it was drawing a lot of people out of the theaters and they went into a pretty bad slump. So they started just coming up with any and all types of gimmicks to compete to get people back to the theaters and that's you know, this was the era of smell-o-vision and all kinds of goofy things like that and it was out of this that 3D emerged and you know, Wanda Devil, I think, is the notoriously bad first 3D movie, and the movies were real gimmicky. They they didn't really, they weren't really good movies. They were just reasons to, you know, throw things at people when they were sitting in the theater seats. And Disney was kind of, you know, a little bit conservative about it, but he decided to, to jump on and ride it a little. And so in 53, he, he released a, a short, which was called Adventures in Music uh, Melody. And it was just one of their regular cartoons, and... It featured a kind of, you know, history of music type of thing with uh, Professor Al and he had a classroom and it was a lot of music. And basically the gimmick was, you know, instead of like, you know, weapons and swords and everything, you know, he was like musical notes were floating floating everywhere. And it was a good cartoon and it was going to be the first in a series of it called Adventures in Music. And then uh, about six months later, they did a Donald Duck cartoon, which is called Working um, for Peanuts, which uh, featured... Donald Duck and Chip and Dale, and they were, um, Donald Duck was a zookeeper, and Chip and Dale were trying to get peanuts away from the elephant. And that's pretty much, those were what they did, those two shorts. And the 3D fad came and went so quickly, it, it literally peaked really in 54 or so. And Disney immediately saw that coming as well and pulled right back out of it. And interestingly enough, there was only one more Adventures in Music short that was done, and that was Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. And interesting, it went on, it moved on to the next gimmick, which thankfully lasted a little bit longer, and that was CinemaScope widescreen. And when widescreen came along, that was one of the very big things that finally lasted and started bringing people back into the theaters. But that pretty much marked the end of uh, 3D. It, it came back hit or miss over the years, even through the 60s and 70s, and you know, recently all the way up to you know, Spy Kids and things like that. Um, but never, never really hit the rage that it had that first couple of years in the 50s. Remember Sensoround? I remember as a kid going to see, like, Earthquake and Towering Inferno in Sensoround. Oh, yes, <laughs> Roller Coaster. Uh, yeah, that was our generation's very, very quick-lived 3D. Yeah, I thought it was the coolest thing, and it was going to be the next generation of what, what was to come. And, and like 3D, I guess it kind of came and went uh, as being nothing more than a fad. So, But the what what... 
Disney did, as as usual, and you know, thinking on his feet, he took those two shorts, Melody and Working for Peanuts, and decided, well, you know, I've got these things sitting here. Let me throw them into Disneyland. And so in '56, he took those two, plus he shot new footage of the Mouseketeers from the Mickey Mouse Club, and it was color footage because um, the Mickey Mouse Club was being broadcast in black and white. And he put those t three things together and created the 3D Jamboree. And that premiered on June 16, 1956. And that uh, went on for about three or four years. It kind of even outlasted the 3D trend. And it was, I believe, in the Fantasyland Theater in Fantasyland. And the, um, and it was, the gimmicky stuff was in the Mouseketeer segment. I mean, they had yo-yo tricks, and Annette Funicello was swinging on a swing. And Roy Williams, the big Mouseketeer, um, he would do a pie-in-the-face kind of routine, and then a pie would get go be thrown at the audience. And you know that went on for a few years, but then when that that was over, that was it. Nothing emerged for almost uh, I guess want to say thirty years, well less than thirty years. Yeah, because you know the the thought would have been that if it worked well at Disneyland, then they would have kept on doing and creating creating new things specifically, you know, at the very least for the theme parks. But like you said, up until uh, what was brought over to Walt Disney World, there really was no other three D. Um, you know, shorts or features brought into the theme parks at all. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it, it became the uh, 3D just really became this low-end, very B-movie type of thing. It, it, it kind of lost a lot of credibility throughout the 60s and 70s when, you know, you were getting just really cheap-end horror films and goofy things like that being made. And so it really, nobody really looked to it as a viable type of thing, either for attractions at theme parks or anything. And it wasn't until... Epcot opened in 82 that Disney revisited it. All right, so moving over into Walt Disney World itself, you know, since the resort opened in 1971, there's been a total of seven 3D movies that, are, that have played in various locations throughout the theme parks. Um, the first real uh, 3D film that played there was Magic Journeys, and that opened with Epcot back on October 1st, 1982. That played over in the Imagination Pavilion. It was later moved to the Magic Kingdom in December 1987. And we're going to touch more on these in more depth, but I kind of want to just take you through a, a brief history of the 3D films there. Uh, one of the most popular of them was Michael Jackson's Captain EO. That really kind of took it to the next level. That was also in the Imagination Pavilion starting in September 1986 through July of 1994. That added kind of the 4D element with lighting effects and strobe lights, things like that. Then we had Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, again, over in uh, Epcot. We had Disney MGM Studios being home to Muppet Vision 3D, which opened in May of 1991. Disney's Animal Kingdom, obviously all four parks each have an attraction, has It's Tough to Be a Bug, which opened in 1998. And finally, Mickey's PhilharMagic opened October 8th, 2003, and really kind of brought the technology to the next level. But let's kind of take a step backwards before we go forward. Let's talk about each of these films one by one. And uh, we're going to start off with Magic Journeys. Again, that opened, it really was, a, it opened October 1st, 1982 with Epcot. It was the first 3D movie created actually by Walt Disney Imagineering for a theme park. It was specifically for that theme park and wasn't shown anywhere else. Um, and one of the nice things about it is you may, you know, you may love the song, you may not like the song, but I'm sure you may remember if you've seen the film, The Magic Journeys theme song, which was created by Richard and Roger Sherman. Yeah, they did actually a good bit of music for the opening of Epcot, and that was um, one of the big pieces they did. An interesting thing to note was Magic Journeys actually opened prior, it opened with the park opening, and the actual um, Journey to Imagination attraction with Dreamfinder and Figment 
didn't open for a few more months. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. So it was kind of the uh, the hallmark attraction there on on the Imagination Pavilion at the initial opening of Epcot. Well, it was a very interesting attraction to say the least. It definitely had the '80s feel to it. Um, you really were kind of looking at the world uh, in 3D through the eyes of a child, and it was kind of a you know trippy sort of you know kids running through the meadow, looking at the clouds. They were blowing on the dandelion, so it very had that very much had that early '80s feel uh, to it, to say the least. And it had a little bit of crazy Cirque du Soleil there, too, didn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there was, there was Pegasus, and there was Merry-Go-Rounds, and it, it was nice. It was, it was a nice film. Uh, you know, wasn't breaking any new ground, technologically speaking. Um, but it did, uh, it did, you know, run its course, and it, and it ran there for a number of years before it was moved to the Magic Kingdom in 1987. And it ran there in the Fantasyland Theater until December 1st, 1993, when it was taken out in preparation for the Legend of the Lion King show. But the notable thing about the move over to the Magic Kingdom, other than the fact that they did actually just pick this attraction up and move it to a different park, was that they added another element to it. And it was another 3D element. And again, things coming full circle, they actually brought in the old Donald Duck short working for Peanuts as part of the pre-show. Yes, and, and basically that cartoon is a proverbial bad penny. Uh, it keeps <laughs> turning up. Uh, it, it showed up there, and one of the greatest surprises I had today when I saw Meet the Robinsons was there it was in front of Meet the Robinsons, restored back to its 3D format, and it was just a great, great moment of nostalgia. Well, the nice thing about when it, when it premiered in Fantasyland was it was a great way for people who would have never had occasion to see the film, certainly not in 3D, to be introduced to it or reintroduced to it. Um, you know, obviously kids never would have seen it back in the 50s. And I think it's just a wonderful, you know, tribute or just kind of a an homage to things kind of coming full circle that they have brought it um, as part of Meet the Robinsons now and kind of a testament yeah, to the just, original. I, it was just really exciting to see it. I, I got a real big kick out of it. It's another reason for me actually to go see it because I would like to actually check out Working for Peanuts once again. The, uh, the next of the 3D films it was really, you know, the big one, uh, especially at the time, and that was Captain EO, and that was the Michael Jackson film, again, over at the Imagination Pavilion in Epcot. And, this, and, and you know, hindsight being 2020, this film really had everything going for it. Uh, it was sci-fi, right in the, in the height of all the science fiction craze. It was in 3D, and again, kind of bring it to the next level of 4D. Uh, it starred Michael Jackson, who at the time was kind of riding the thriller fame. He really was arguably the number one pop sensation worldwide. It was developed by George Lucas. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, you know, it was backed by Disney. It starred Angelica Houston, an, award, an Academy Award-winning actress. You know, what could go wrong? <laughs> it, was the perfect, uh, it was the perfect film, and uh, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. I, I have a lot of good memories of it. And uh, it was a 17-minute film, and kind of the story behind it was he, you know, was out in space, and he was kind of seeking to deliver this message of love and peace to this evil supreme leader and that, that's who Angelica Houston played and she kind of had this very uh, for all you next Star Trek Next Generations fan kind of in a Borg Queen feel to her uh, the, the film opened in 1986 and was wildly popular and Disney reports that it actually brought guests specifically over to Epcot just to see this movie uh, that's how yeah. big and that's how good it was it, it had to me I just remember having a very distinct Star Wars feel to it as well his his crew of aliens just seemed like they walked right out of the Katina sequence in, in Star Wars. It was 
and it was right. People were able to relate to it really, really well. It was almost really, more, it was a almost of more of a Spaceballs feeling. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> you know, his, his crew was Hooter, Fuzzball, Major Domo, Minor Domo, and the Geeks. So it, it was kind of a, a campy, um, <laughs> almost a campy Star Wars tribute. And Michael Jackson is has always been, as many people know, a huge, huge Disney fan. So I think uh, he had a lot of desire to do it. Yeah, and, you know, as legend goes, he is actually the one that brought this to Disney, not the other way around. His advisor at the time was David Geffen, and he suggested to Michael that he make, you know, this movie. So uh, Geffen calls up Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was then head of the studio, with the idea. Um, Katzenberg goes to Iser, talks about not only making a film or an attraction, but going 3D. Because remember, Thriller at the time really kind of put music videos on the map. And of course, Disney, in the interest of going one up and plussing it, says, let's, let's really make this, you know, big movie style music video in 3D, um, you know, for Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Obviously, for the, the money that was going into it, it had an $11 million budget. It ended up coming in around $17 million. They were going to spread this out between both parks. And remember, you're now looking at a film that's about a million dollars per minute. And uh, again, legend has it that this, at the time, was the most expensive per-minute movie ever made. Well, when you consider it only cost like, the original Star Wars $10 million, and that was only 10 years earlier, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was money well spent right there. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, they got their money's worth out of it, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right about Michael Jackson being a, a huge Disney fan. You know, um, for many years, he was always seen at the parks. Um, again, he's supposed to have a, a working replica of Pirates of the Caribbean, or did, I should say, over at his Neverland Ranch. Uh, don't think he actually owns that anymore, but... <laughs> um, you know, again, so much the film had going for it. Um, again, Francis Ford Coppola, he had... They have actually... The songs that were in the film, one of which was very popular, even on, on pop music charts, was Another Part of Me. That was developed just for the attraction and, and obviously took off and, and got legs in the quote-unquote real world as well. But the thing about the film was, again, the plussing of the 3D, and it really started this this generation of 4D attractions that we mentioned previously when we talked about Muppets, which was that you now had effects that, that came off the screen and into the theater themselves. These were, these were physical, tactile effects. They had you know laser beams, and they had smoke effects, and there was a kind of a star field that kind of filled up the entire theater and really enveloped the audience into more than just what was going on on screen. And you can really tell that with each successive film, it kept going, extending further and further into the theater environment. And when you jump now into Muppet Vision, you, you jump from, you know, Captain EO, which was just basically special effects, to now you have audio animatronics interacting. And, and actually, in the case of Muppet Vision as well, you have a live performer in the, in the guise of Sweetums. You have the entire rear of the theater with the Swish, uh, Swedish chef and the projection booth. And then where you, in fact, at the end of the, the movie, have the entire theater totally change dynamic with the course of destruction that ensues <laughs> with the penguins and the cannon and all that. So, yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, you just went from watching a movie to watching your entire environment around you change and evolve throughout, you know, the 15 minutes you're there. And they continue to do that. And, you know, you bring me to, to Muppet Vision 3D, which was the next of the 3D films. That opened on May 16th of 1991. And it was kind of a collaborative effort between Jim Henson and Disney. You know, Disney for a long time was trying to get the Muppets in there. What better way to do it than with a fully immersive 3D film? And we've talked about this at length. I'll put a link up in the show notes to the discussion we had over on the last podcast 
about Muppet Division and the queue and the gags and the inside jokes and just, I mean, the pre-show itself could almost qualify as an attraction. Yeah, it, it's, it was just, and it was so wacky and irreverent. It was, it was just a great piece of work all around. But once again, totally, totally immersive. I mean, they basically put you in the Muppet Show, the original Muppet Show kind of theater environment with Statler and Waldorf up on the balcony. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and you're right, bringing in the animatronics and the live character. Um, you know, they, they tried to introduce this Waldo C graphic, that, that this new first CG Muppet that really um, probably didn't wasn't as popular as they had hoped. But, uh, you know, the film itself is awesome. It still holds through, you know, uh, what is it, 16 years later, um, it, it still stands the test of time and is, and is wildly popular. Now, that is, in fact, now, that's the longest running of the, the films to go, right? Right, exactly. That's, that, yeah. Like I said, we, 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 we're not going to kind of go into it now because we did have such an in-depth discussion. Again, I'll link to that in the show notes where you can listen to the old show and, uh, and hear us talk about it there. But the next of Disney's theme parks, uh, 3D attraction, was the one that actually came to replace Captain EO. Captain EO closed after eight years on July 11th, 1994. That was replaced by Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. And that only was not only brought into Walt Disney World, but it opened in 1994 in Epcot, in 1998 in Disneyland, 97 in Tokyo Disneyland under a different name, and Disneyland Paris in 1999. And uh, again, Disney took the franchise, the Honey I Shrunk the the Honey I Shrunk the the wait, Honey I Shrunk kids. the Kid, right? <laughs> this was kids, the first kids. one, <laughs> right? That was that was the one that kind of launched uh, the the two or so movies that followed. But um, again the next step in the evolution of the 3d 4d films at, at the theme parks and this is it's a, it's an interesting one because today a lot of people you know have lost it's lost kind of its luster a lot of folks they're kind of just not too thrilled about it but in the day when it premiered it was a big big success a kind of a sleeper um it was i think a lot of people went into the theater with not a lot of expectation and came out just really really thrilled with it i remember it had huge, huge uh, weights for it the first couple of years it came out. Yeah, and and you know, it's today it has it has two main issues that I think may plague the attraction. Uh, number one is relevance. You know, do kids today know or, or remember Honey I Shrunk the Kids? Do they do they know the film? And number two, again, also speaking with Kim about, about kids, is the the fear factor element uh, because. Part of the 4D effects has to deal with, you know, and it's not a spoiler here, chances are you've seen it, you know, the mice running at your feet or the snake or the shaking of the theater. And to some kids, that may scare them or it may startle them. And, you know, it does have its share of kids that, that come out unhappy, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I, I, when I first saw it, I really was amazed at the surprises that kind of came and hit you with it. I, the mice kind of emerging into the, the theater coming off the film and then kind of going up through the theater, you know, just was a really remarkable effect. And it just, it literally freaked people right out of their seats. So you were sitting next to my mother, I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not, not a huge fan of the mice. Just <laughs> put it <to> that way. <laughs> but it was, just, it was just such a fun moment. It's just one of those moments that just the first time it happens to you, it's, it's just, it's such a magical kind of thing. Cause you're, you're just totally just surprised by it. And it's that element of fun that you, that you really like about it. And I think they, they, I think they did a great job transitioning from the films, kind of coming up with a good story about the whole Inventor of the Year award ceremony. Uh, I think the way they actually built the theater, what they did is they kind of put the audience up on a platform that that moves 
this way when when the kid picks up the theater you kind of really get that sensation of the theater being picked up and moved and it's interesting is that for as much as you say you question you know its relevance which is absolutely true you know where people don't remember the movie it then go went on to inspire the entire overlay of the imagination pavilion you know it it basically they basically migrated eric idol's uh character over into the attraction and Granted, it's that's been a controversial. <laughs> Some may say that it's not a good thing. Yeah, so. <laughs> but uh, but it in fact, you know, it kind of reshaped the entire imagination pavilion for better or for worse. Eric Idle killed the Dreamfinder. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. talk amongst yourselves. But um, <laughs> the, um, the the next of the three D four D films again had to do with a uh, a Disney and Disney Pixar movie actually, and actually came out beforehand. And that was it's a it's tough to be a bug, and that's the nine minute three D film based on a bug li- bug's life that is in the tree of life over at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And there, when you mention the fear factor, yeah, this is the one that does it. This is the one that sends small children screaming hysterically from the theater. <laughs> and my mother. <laughs> 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 does she does she go anywhere with you anymore? Does she trust you now? <laughs> Um, Come which, on, mom! It's a, it's a little yeti. He's not that <laughs> it's not a coaster, really. It's a little. No. It's a little fun thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> He's a strap, six inches tall. <laughs> strap yourself in. Don't worry. But uh, yeah, you're right. And, and you know, one thing I tell people all the time that are going, especially for the first time, is unlike so many other places, Disney World, you need to prepare ahead of time for on so many levels. And one of the things you need to prepare for, is, especially if you have kids, is the potential scare factor in in places like this you know pick up a guidebook pick up the unofficial guide go through it or kind of test drive the attraction yourself and see hey you know is there a possibility that my four five six year old may get freaked out by some of the things they see whether it be the incredible hopper animatronic that we talked about uh during our animatronics discussion or some of these giant spider landing on your head from above i mean yeah exactly well even the water effects even the water effects startle people to the point that you know kids may cry because it's dark remember it's pitch black in there too you know, again, the uh, I, I think it's a great film. I still think that um, it holds up very well after a number of years. Uh, and the thing that I really like about it, too, is it's filled with celebrity cameos. You see celebrities all throughout attractions in Walt Disney World. This has it, it, its great fair share. Uh, Chili the Tarantula is played by Cheech Marin from Cheech and Chong. Jason Alexander, who is George from Seinfeld, is the voice of Acorn Weevil. And I remember John Cryer, who was Ducky from Pretty in Pink. He actually stars as Flick, who kind of takes you along on this journey, um, you know, which is supposed to be somewhat educational as well, kind of teaching you that, you know, bugs are our friends um, and not, shouldn't necessarily be stomped on, but appreciated and, and understand their contributions to the environment. And interestingly, relating to that, now you have to help me out here because I'm drawing a blank. The actor that did the voice of Hopper in the movie was... Google, Google, Google. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drawing a total blank, but he declined to do the voice work in the attraction, and then rumor has it then that when he actually visited the attraction, he totally regretted the decision, and now I'm drawing, like you said, drawing a total blank on the gentleman's name, and he's fairly well known. <laughs> no, um, it's just kind of embarrassing. That Kevin Lou Spacey, and I... Kevin Spacey, oh. Kevin Spacey, God. yeah, Lex Luthor, that's him. <laughs> boy, oh boy, as if I had written a trivia book about this park. Yeah, how can I forget? You're right, Kevin Spacey. Yeah, he, he, he decided he didn't want to do it and then came back later after the, the movie was a big hit and saw how elaborate the animatronic was and was kind of kicking himself for not for not going through with it at the time. Well, too bad. Too bad for him. Yeah, but, uh, you know. 
Yeah, and, and again, we talked about enveloping you uh, in your environment above and beyond just what you see on screen, and you have it with the animatronics, and you have it with the the effects that come out of, of the seats in front of you, and kind of all around uh, the entire the entire theater. And the other thing that I like about this too is even before you get into the film itself, and I guess it bears mentioning, is the queue. Because I think the queue, and I know, Jeff, you would appreciate this because based on your articles and discussions we've had, the queue is great because some of the posters that are in there and the, the, the music that is there pays homage to some, some great old films and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got the, the, the lobby, or pre-show, well, pre-show area, but the actual interior area, waiting area, has all that great kind of Broadway tie-ins. Uh, they have all the posters that are tie-ins to uh, Broadway shows, and as uh, I think you've mentioned, uh, the music in the background is um, all Beauty and the Beast. It's all takeoffs on uh, Broadway music. Yeah, you have you know Beauty and the Beast. You've got Annie, West Side Story. I'm sure most kids are not going to know things like from The King and I, uh, a chorus line. But pay close attention. You know, kind of stop. Again, we talk about this all the time. Stop, look around your environment, you know, read some of the attraction posters, and I'll try and put some pictures up in the show notes. But listen to the music going on um, behind you as well, because it's really, uh, it's really something neat. And, and something else that's notable about this, too, is that Pixar, although they did create the A Bug's Life film, they did actually not do the It's Tough to Be a Bug uh, 3D movie. And that's part of the reason is because... The, movie, the attraction opened about seven months before the film came out. Right. They were basically scrambling to finish um, A Bug's Life. And basically, Imagineering or Disney had to farm it out to a, another animation studio. Right. And that company is called Rhythm and Hughes. And you may not know their name, but I'm sure you may know their work. They've actually won an Academy Award in 1996 for the movie Babe. They've also done a lot of CG stuff for Daredevil, Garfield, um, Cat in the Hat, they did a lot. They did work on Chronicles of Narnia, X Men Two. They also did the uh, remember the old Coca Cola Polar Bears commercials and the Geico's Gecko. Yeah, yeah. That that's all their work as well. So it's uh, it's a very high quality company that they decided to go with to do this. And then another interesting thing to mention is um, like we were talking about kind of the mice portion of uh, Honey I Shrunk the Audience. This had that also that similar uh, kind of moment at the end where the bug, bugs crawl under your seats and basically sends everybody scurrying. <laughs> now, I know you know the answer, but we want to just kind of throw this trivia fact in there anyway. All of the, uh, the 3D films in the four parks have different names for the glasses that they use. Let's kind of go through them one by one. And we'll see if we can name what all the glasses are. Okay, let's start off with Honey, I Shrunk the Audience over at, at Epcot. That is your That are the safety glasses. And Muppet Vision 3D over at... Uh, MGM? This is a tough one. I think they're called 3D glasses. Are, are, they, call, are, are they called safety <laughs> goggles? <laughs> uh, it's tough to be a bug. This is easy. Uh, bug eyes. You're honorary because you're all honorary bugs. That's right. And leading into our seventh and final of the, uh, of the films, the PhilharMagic in, in the Magic Kingdom. Are the opera glasses. That's right. So the seventh and final of the Walt Disney World theme park 3D films is, of course, Mickey's PhilharMagic, and that is located in Fantasyland in what is now known as the PhilharMagic Concert Hall. It was re- they renamed the old Fantasyland Theater to the PhilharMagic Concert Hall when PhilharMagic replaced Legend of the Lion King when that closed back on February 3rd, 2002. And, of course, in true Disney style, they, again, take it to the next level. They do plus it. They add a lot of things that really enhance this attraction, 
One thing that, that is a little bit of trivia that's pretty cool is the screen is 150 feet wide, which is one of the largest uh, screens ever created, especially for a 3D film. I am a huge, huge fan of this for so many reasons. Uh, classic characters, um, the whole 3D experience, the effects, or even the renderings that they did. For example, um, uh, the, the Aladdin scene, the city of Agrabah, which is the, the largest 3D environment ever created um, by Disney. Um, I think it's just spectacular. Yeah, they're, they're, it was interesting is when they announced it and they announced that the characters would all be CG. There was a lot of people that had reservations, and I think they did a fantastic job. Um, I, Donald Duck, being the centerpiece of the attraction, is so true to his original um, character as he was presented back in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, he's just dead on, despite the fact that he's 3D instead of 2D. And it just it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. And again... It doesn't have the problems, potential problems for young kids that that uh, Bugs and uh, Honey I Shrunk the Audience did, and it's just totally family friendly. Um, great, just great stuff. I, I I just was amazed at how all encompassing the screen was. It had a it had a much bigger bigger feel to it than say Bugs Life and Honey I Shrunk the Audience, and just really good job. Yeah, and, and like we said, it's 150 feet wide, 28 feet high, and the way you know. As the, the film starts to progress and they, the, the screen expands farther and farther and really seems to envelop you is wonderful. But, you know, we were talking earlier, Jeff, about how things with Disney seem to come full circle, um, how working for Peanuts was the first. It's brought back in in their latest three things, uh, 3D film. But the, it's the same holding true here as it's, it's somewhat uh, almost a nice irony, but a, a touch that where PhilharMagic is playing now was the home of the Mickey Mouse Review. And that's where kind of Mickey... And all the other characters originally debuted as animatronics. Um, and, and that's why I was so excited when this attraction came back in, because I made the same connection. Because I really missed Mickey Mouse Review when it left. It was um, I was still young. I had been there in 76. And when I returned in 81, I believe, it was gone. And at that point, I didn't know enough. You know, There wasn't internet to give you all this information. But I had no idea that it had been you know, exported over to Tokyo. And I really missed the classic characters being there in, in Fantasyland. And it just was, like you said, it brought it all back. This was a great way of bringing it back. Yeah, and, and it's a great marriage that Disney was able to do with, with Imagineering, collaborating with, with Disney Feature Animation to bring these characters back, to really give them, you know, they have depth and they have character to it. And what I think makes this, this attraction classic is the fact that they use these classic characters that that the music is just timeless and it, and it spans all the generations and all the characters that we and our parents and our kids know and love it, it, i'll tell you it has one of the funniest moments uh, for some particular reason the, the, the part of the film that just cracks me up every time is the peter pan sequence when all the characters alternately land on big ben and then Donald comes careening <laughs> and just throws it all out of whack. And I just, every single time that for some reason that just, that, that sequence just brings just a total chuckle to myself. I mean, it's just crazy. Well, being, being a big Peter Pan fan, I was so happy to see it. And, you know, the music, it's, it's evocative and it's, it's moving. And I totally, I mean, you know, you were talking before about Donald Duck and one, and again, kind of going full circle. You know, most of Donald's voice that, that you hear in the show was actually kind of cut and pasted out of classic performances by the original Donald Duck, which was Clarence Ducky Nash. Um, Tony Anselmo, who's the current voice of Donald, added a few lines in here and there, um, such as when he was humming Be Our Guest and things like that. But you would never know that a lot of these lines actually came from the original Donald. 
Oh, that's great. I, I was not even familiar with that. That's, that's terrific. Yeah, and, and um, they had brought actually back animators who had done, for example, uh, Nick Ranieri, who had done Lumiere and Beauty and the Beast. They brought him back to help doing him in 3D for Philomagic. Same thing as far as Glenn Keane, who did Ariel and the Little Mermaid. He came back to do her, having done her in 2D, now bring her back and do her in 3D. And I think that's why the characters look as good as they do. And a great, and a great piece of the, the movie is the, like as you mentioned before about Agra, Agrabah being rendered for the film, that you, you literally jump from a theater presentation to almost a motion simulator <laughs> when, you're, when you're on that flying carpet. And that just, that just blew me away the first time I did it because it really took you almost into a Star Tours type of environment. It was so well done. And that, that could be an attraction in and of itself. They have something similar to that down at Disney Quest. They have Aladdin's Magic Carpet Ride where you kind of wear the, uh, the um, heads-up display helmet. And you kind of ride on, on almost like a little scooter, and it's a 3D thing. But what they do in PhilharMagic, I mean, they could have made an attraction out of that, you know, kind of a virtual out. Would have been much better than the flying carpets that are plopped right. in the middle of Adventureland. But, uh, you know, especially being an Aladdin fan, as, as I am. Yeah, I've seen quite a few people swoon a little bit when, they, when the carpet flips around and literally, like, almost spins you 360 as you're going, going through the city. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great. I think it's the best of all the 3D attractions on so many levels. Um, and again, anybody can see it. Unlike some of the other things we mentioned, kids, grandparents, you know, everybody can go and they can enjoy it and they can appreciate it because they're all familiar with the characters. Whereas, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, or It's Tough to Be a Bug, they may not know who those characters are, having not seen those films. Here, you, you've got you've definitely got a character or characters in there that you know and that you love. Yeah, it's it's great. It is it is easily as my my favorite as well of all the 3D movies. So, and that kind of brings us back, you know, back to the future. Pardon the obscure Universal reference, but um, you know, with with the success of the films in the theme parks, and now the the what's appearing to be the current resurgence of 3D movies and the the advance in technology of digital theaters and the plans by both you know Disney and and Lucas and DreamWorks. Uh, you know, what do you think? The, the future of 3D in the theme parks might be? Well, I think it's going to all come down to one particular one that's coming up that's going to kind of almost be a benchmark, and it sounds like that's going to be Toy Story Mania over at MGM Studios and uh, in California Adventure Out and in Disneyland as well. Uh, been some recent reports that a good portion of the ride is going to be screens with uh, 3D projections on them, um, not so much, you know, environments, actual, you know, audio animatronic-based environments, but actual 3D projections. I've heard that as well, and, and the other aspect that that brings to it, an attraction like that is repeatability factor, and not just you know day after day, but I'm talking year after year, where they have the track in place, but they'll be able to relatively very easily swap out the 3D scenes. So whether they retheme it to something else in Toy Story or something else altogether, they've already got the technology in place and the screens there. Yeah, there was one, there was one particular report I saw that mentioned how you could take the you know the Toy Story theme and they could do very easily do say a Halloween overlay or a Christmas overlay, just any kind of seasonal overlay, and then like again like you're saying, really give it a lot longer legs than it would normally have. Right, and again, there's supposed to be the introduction of another new technology um, as far as enhancing that 3D experience that I'm really really looking forward to seeing. I'm I'm excited about what the possibilities Toy Story may bring. And, you know, I think I think as a whole, uh, between not only what's going on in the theme parks, but what's going on in the movies, uh, I, I think, Jeff, right now, we, we're kind of paying witness to 
what people in the future are going to look back on as being a very uh, amazing, transformational, if that's a word, an exciting time for the company. I think between Bob Iger's embracing of technology and John Lasseter reintroducing a new creative element and a new creative force into the company, we are really living through what I think is truly, you know, pardon the use of the term, a magical time for the company and the theme parks and us as guests. Yeah, and, and I got to say, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there that'll, you know, think I'm overstating a lot of this, but when I sat in the theater today and watched Meet the Robinsons, I put on those, you know, they, the little thing sign came up and said, put on your 3D glasses now. And they launched into previews, and they did an interesting thing. They did a YouTube preview. There was a YouTube concert film 3D, you know, that's coming out. But then they, you know, did a preview for Nightmare Before Christmas, which they're probably, it looks like they're going to be re-releasing again this Halloween, so they might even make that a yearly seasonal kind of a thing. But everything was 3D, and everything had so much depth. And then the castle came up, you know, the castle logo came up as it does in the middle, at the beginning of Disney movies. But it was all in 3D, and there were little sparkles everywhere. <laughs> and just what you said, it was. A, I just sat there with this sense of, oh my gosh, this is this is the future. And it's so much, like you said, so many people, big important people like Lucas and Spielberg and Disney, are investing so much in taking this type of entertainment to the next level that it does. I felt like oh, I was at the beginning of something extraordinary, and it just it was a really really kind of goosebumpy feeling to be sitting there watching all that because it was an amazing experience and I in the past few years I've I've quit going to theaters I've quit going to the movies as much I, I sit at home and pop the DVDs in and this gave me a really really good reason to go back to a movie theater again and that's what they want they, they're trying to get us back there but they're finally doing something that's a real enticement and it's very very exciting it's really scary that you were reading my mind because I was going to ask you do you think this is going to be what may bring people back to the theaters because people don't have you know HD DVD players and big plasma screens and, and video on demand. So many of us um, are, are not, I'm not saying I have that, but so many of us are not able to or just don't go to the theaters. Is this going to be enough? You know, um, the fact that you are so impressed and, and dare I say even amazed having seen so many different generations of 3D films by what you saw at Meet the Robinsons, that very well may be enough to start bringing people back into the theaters again. Well, it, yeah, and, and, and exactly because. When I saw Mickey's Magic, I was impressed with it on a very technical level, too, because it did, to me, far exceed all the movies that came before it. They had keep ramping it up technically. One of the reasons I think that 3D has been so successful at the theme parks is because 3D is something that you really, it's really the old-style 3D, the linear kind of uh, polarization, is something that's really difficult to take beyond 15 or 20 minutes. Um, it you know, traditionally, if people get headaches, you know, people, especially, you know, with prescription, you know, glasses or whatever, have problems with it, the ghost images. If you're dealing with that beyond a 10 or 15 minute time limit, it starts to cause problems. And I think in that regard, up until now, it was a good fit for theme parks because you're only looking at something that was a, you know, 15, 20 minute type of entertainment. Right. What's so great about this now is, you know, I sat there for two hours without a, any kind of discomfort whatsoever or, you know, kind of headachey feeling or, and, and that's the interesting thing to me is now we're going to that level. And it's just, to me, it was such a jump in quality going from Mickey's Magic just to meet the Robinsons today. It, it just was that impressive. Interesting. Well, I definitely have to make it a point to go out and see it because I do want to, I want to see the film and I also want to see it in 3D. So I'll check it out in the theaters. Jeff, thank you again for coming on, uh, for sharing. And what I want to do is I want to invite you, the listener, to, uh, to come on and let us know what you think about 
3D in the parks, the 3D films, the future of 3D, whatever it may be. Come on and talk about it over at the WDW Radio forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Call me, call the vo- call me, or call the voicemail at 206-2024-WDW, or e- send me an email at Lou at WDWRadio.com. I'd like to invite you to come by the show notes page, click on the link, and cast your vote for what your favorite Walt Disney World 3D or 4D attraction is, especially in light of this discussion. I'd be very curious to see what the general consensus is as to what their favorite attraction is in the parks. I've asked uh, Jeff Pepper to kind of hang out with me a little bit longer, and we're going to do some of your emails and voicemails that I've been promising you for oh so many weeks that we were going to get to. And uh, the first email is actually a combination of two, because I've, I've received a number of emails recently about a similar subject. And uh, I'm going to read the first one, and this comes from Jim, who says, I've heard from a cast member at Disney that they are turning what used to be the submarine voyage attraction at Disneyland into a Nemo-themed ride. This made me wonder whether they might resurrect the old 20,000 Leagues ride at the Magic Kingdom. It was one of my favorites. I'd heard that they decommissioned the ride because the vehicles needed a lot of maintenance since they were in water all day. However, since they're putting something back at Disneyland, maybe they have that problem licked. While I don't think Florida needs another new Nemo attraction, considering that two just opened, it would be amazing to see 20,000 Leagues come back. Aren't they doing an animated feature on it soon? What more perfect way to revitalize the franchise than by bringing back the attraction, too? I know, I'm dreaming, but I just wanted to see what you thought and if you've heard any rumors about what would become of the 20,000 League space. Thanks. And I had gotten a similar email from John Strickland, who thanked me for the podcast and the books, and also was asked, asked if Disney had any plans for the, uh, the 20,000 Leagues location in Fantasyland. He, too, is a, f- a fan of not only attraction, but the 54 movie, and as well as underwater rides in general. Well, Jim and John, thank you for those. I, too, was a huge, huge 20,000 Leagues fan. Um, I, I will not uh, talk about you know my nostalgic memories of going there with my family and riding it with my fathers, but I'm actually going to do, and maybe I'll enlist the help of Jeff for this, uh, a piece about the attraction uh, for the show, because I think it was one that was very much loved by so many people, and uh, and many of us wish was still here. But I think you really bring up a very interesting point about why the subs went away in the first place. You know, Disney ever actually gave real reasons, and, and the attraction kind of closed very unceremoniously. But there were reported problems with unload and unload times, um, access for guests with special needs. I don't know if you remember, Jeff, they kind of these narrow winding stairs that you had to go down after you kind of cross a little bridge onto the deck of the sub. Yeah, it was it was a queue line nightmare. I remember very distinctly. And interestingly enough, like you, Lou, um, my first visit was in '73, and I was you know 12 years old. And all I wanted to do was get to Disney World and ride 20,000 leagues. <laughs> that that was the e-ticket that I just was all about when I went on my first visit. And it was interesting is as but returning as an adult. It was a ride that I had so much nostalgia for, but I rarely ever rode because it was such an agonizing wait. Yeah, and I think that's always been a problem. Now, you know, based on the images that I've seen of the Nemo subs at Disneyland, this appears like it still may be an issue once again. You know, again, assuming it was an issue at all, because Disney never really discussed officially why they closed the attraction. But the subs kind of load and unload the same way. And, you know, as far as guests with special needs and, and guests who need to transfer out of wheelchairs, my only assumption can be is that the Americans with Disability Act must have grandfathered in these old subs 
both in Disneyland and at Walt Disney World? And if so, that's the reason why they allow them to operate the way they are, even though they're clearly not, you know, wheelchair accessible. And if that's the case, you know, logic would reason that that's probably the reason why they're using the same subs in Disneyland as opposed to building completely new ride vehicles that would not, that would definitely have to have that kind of access to them. Uh, you know, as far as maintenance and water issues, I'm sure that could have been resolved, you know, in the past decade or so since the attraction closed, especially with um, a lot of the new technologies they're going to be bringing in, probably much like the Nemo attraction in Epcot, they're going to project some of those kind of same images in the water. So they would have to worry about the, the decay of the actual props, you know, sitting in the water um, like that. Yeah, I think I think ultimately, it, you know, just again, you know, we're speculating, but I just think it was it could possibly very well have been the most unpopular ride in the park that had the longest lines because, <laughs> you know, a very minimal amount of people could have been riding it, but at the same time, it was just taking forever to get them through. And it, you know, like I said, it being an underwater attraction where it had a lot of features underwater, you know, the maintenance could have, like I said, it could have been okay. But I think over time, I don't think that as many people were really riding as we think they were. It's kind of like the Grand Prix Raceway. I mean, it's not, a lot of people think, oh, that's so popular because it takes so long. Well, it's, it's just because it takes forever to, to get, get through the, the queue line. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. As a kid, I totally bought into the idea that we were going underwater. I totally, oh, yeah, yeah. I, the bubbles came up. I'm like, wow, this is, this is awesome. We're, but anyway, that, that being yeah. the case. <laughs> no, I, I wanted to kill my, I had an older brother. He sat next to me like the first time we rode and he said, just look up. You know, she pointed to the surface wall, you know, <laughs> I wanted to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> That's why your brother's not the guest on the show this weekend. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, uh, you, you talked about kind of the rebirth of the franchise. And, and I think the, the introduction of a new 20,000 Leagues attraction in Walt Disney World would not only please the nostalgic purist geeks like myself, but introduce Nemo and the whole story to a whole new generation of fans. From what I understand, there's a, uh, in 2009, there's going to be a live-action movie, not animated movie, with I think Sam Raimi is going to be uh, directing it. But, you know, I think other than maybe wishful thinking on mine and maybe probably your part, I really haven't seen or heard anything about 20,000 Leagues coming back to Fantasyland, um, you know, unfortunately, anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, I think the sad news there is it's, it's pretty much, it's, it's gone into the history books. But, God, the Nautilus subs look cool, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they, they sure did. And actually, Disney just released, and they're impossible to get at the Art of Disney store, a, a miniature replica of the 20,000 Leagues sub, and they sold out. And every time I've either called or gone to the Art of Disney in Walt Disney World, they are sold out. You can't well, they, Didn't them. they, um, wasn't there also uh, a model suspended in the old... Um, Q area for uh, Living Seas. Yep. Or a yep. display. I don't know if it was a display or something, but I remember seeing it there, and I always got a big kick out of that. It was displayed there, and it's been taken down, and, and you know, one can only wonder where it, where it may have gone at this point. Mouse surplus. <laughs> oh, one <laughs> could only hope. <laughs> Honey? Uh, <laughs> clear off the dining room table. I just bought a mon- Nautilus. Yeah. <laughs> She'd be like, you bought a what? <laughs> So anyway, our next uh, email comes from Sean Nava, who says, Hey, Lou, I just wanted to let you in on something, and I'm not sure if you've talked about cool places to eat breakfast as of late or not. If you haven't, or if you have, I still want to share this with you. At MGM, there's a kind of neat place to eat if there's only around four of you. I'm not sure what the name of it is, but it's attached to the Sci-Fi Cafe. It's a small coffee shop, souvenir shop as well, and what's cool about it is that it goes pretty far back, and when we ate there, I believe on a Saturday... We were alone the entire time. There's a small table in the back right by the music CDs and the muffins. There's Disney music going on, and it's like you have the store to yourselves. I'm not sure if we just lucked out 
or if it's just so off the beaten path that no one comes in that early, but this was one of the very best experiences that we had at Disney. Even though the muffins and coffee were just okay, it's really cool to have your table and staff to yourselves without a ton of people. It feels like you're owning the store. I just wanted to share it with you. Maybe you could use it on an upcoming podcast. I could always find the name of it if you'd like to have it, Sean. Sean, thank you for the email, but shh, you are giving away all the good secrets because <laughs> I, too, I love the writer stop, and that's the name of it as well. And it is, uh, it is attached to kind of sci-fi uh, near the streets of America. And you're right, it's a coffee shop, and they sell bagels and muffins and these decadent cinnamon buns and brownies. And I actually think the coffee is pretty good, but it is a very nice, out-of-the-way stop. Um, they have a ton of great Disney books there, although I wish they sold mine there. That would be a different story. But anyway, um, I, I think it is a great place to kind of either go for breakfast for a quick bite or to kind of get out of the way. You can sit down, kind of browse the books. I think they also have scrapbooking stuff in there. CDs. Um, I'll see if I can put a map up or a picture of it up in the show notes page. But again, it, the place you are talking about is called The Writer Stop, and I do like it and recommend it as well. Now, a bit of trivia there. Um, it was called something before, and it had a very, very distinct tie into something. Do you remember what that was, Lou? I'm thinking that it had a tie into. I got. I can see that. I can see it. Didn't have a tie to to Ellen or something. Yeah, it was. If you remember, and I'm not. I wasn't a regular watcher of her early sitcom, but it. She, the character that she portrayed in in her earlier sitcom, owned the bookstore, and the bookstore was called By the Book. That's it. And I believe for a brief period of time, and it might have been. I guess they did tie in pretty close to when Disney bought ABC, because that's the show. Was, her show was on ABC. I'm thinking that you know for at least a couple of years there that the name of the store was By the Book, and it was kind of modeled after her like little bookstore cafe that was on the show. That's it. Very good. Very good. All right, let's um, let's go ahead and play a, a a quick voicemail here. Hi, my name is Lindsay, and I'm eight years old. I want to know if you heard any rumors about Marie the cat wandering around the Magic Kingdom park. We'll listen to your podcast every day on the way to school. Thanks, Mr. Lou. All right. Thank you for calling that in. And uh, that's actually a good question because last time I went down to to, um, Walt Disney World, I actually have seen Marie the Cat over at the Disney MGM Studios. She wasn't at uh, the Magic Kingdom, but she was at the studios. And you're starting to see, I think, a lot more relatively obscure characters like her and... um, Clarice, not not from Silence of the Lambs, but the uh, this this friend of Chippendales, this lady friend of Chippendales, showing up. Um, I, I've also seen Daisy Duck, um, Chicken Little, Abigail, Kim Possible, um, the Power Rangers. Uh, now you're gonna start seeing Meet the Robinsons, but you see these more these kind of obscure characters, maybe more so at um, the studios than you will necessarily over at the Magic Kingdom. And interesting with Marie the Cat, uh, nothing. You know, nothing official that I know of, but I think there's a bit of a connection there with uh, Tokyo Disneyland. It, Marie the Cat, to my knowledge, has gone through a bit of licensing resurgence over there. Um, I guess playing a little bit to the Hello Kitty crowd in, uh, in Japan. Um, but I recently had a friend who's very big into anime and Japanese pop culture stuff point out to me that there was a great deal of Marie the Cat uh, merchandise over at Tokyo Disneyland. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I never, never quite got the Hello Kitty thing, but it's okay. <laughs> all right, our next email comes from Emma. And she says, Hi, Lou. First of all, I just want to say thank you, and I love the podcast. I was really missing listening to the old show. Then this week I found about your new show. I've been catching up. It's really great and so enjoyable. Thank you, Emma. 
My question is about Walt Disney World computer games from a few years ago. I used to love playing the Walt Disney World Magical Racing Tour on, yes, the PS1, and I also remember buying a couple of versions of a WDW guide for the PC, maybe around 1996. It was kind of like an interactive guidebook to Walt Disney World, and you collected hidden Mickeys while you looked all around the attractions, which also unlocked a special video clip if you found them all. It was really good, especially for people who had never been to Disney, but it doesn't seem to be produced anymore. Did you ever have either of these games... Yes, my big geek. Um, well done again for the new show. See ya. Emma, a.k.a. Disney Barbie from Southampton, England. Well, Disney Barbie, thank you very much for the email and compliments on the show. I'm happy to hear that you are enjoying it. And I actually loved, loved the Magical Quest Racing Tour game um, on my PS1. I have seen it on eBay a few times. Uh, that's probably your best place to go and get it. And you kind of, for those of you who may not have seen it, you kind of boarded these different kind of ride vehicles. It was a little racing game. And uh, it, it, when you first started the game, you had a few different attractions that you could ride. And then as you completed um, different levels, you can, it would open up new attractions like Splash Mountain and Space Mountain and things like that. And uh, it was actually very cool and, and had a lot of soundtracks. I remember the test track soundtrack was exactly, and Dinosaur were right from the, um, from the attractions themselves. Uh, yes, we, we own that. And. <laughs> That is easily my very favorite, one of my very favorite video games. And I've been very sad that it wasn't popular enough for them to, like, you know, plus it a little and, and release it for a PS2. Yeah, boy, they, Disney is, is, I think, missing out on a big opportunity to bring some sort of attraction-based game to one of these consoles. But uh, since I have no time to play them anymore, <laughs> it, it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't affect me. But uh, I would love to see it. I would, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Now, as far as the other CD you're talking about, what I think you're mentioning is what's called the Walt Disney World Explorer. And it's still something that I have. I actually have two copies, and I refer to every now and then. It's great, and it really is kind of an interactive tour of Walt Disney World and it has video clips and it has photos. You can search for hidden Mickeys. Very, very interactive, not just kind of a sit back and watch thing. I actually do know somewhere where you can get new versions of the WDW Explorer CD-ROM. I will put a link up to that in the show notes. The other thing you should look for too is, um, I think in the very near future, look over at mouseguest.com. Um, Eric and Dan have a podcast over there and they're about to launch a subscription-based area of their site where they're going to have uh, a, basically a virtual tour of Walt Disney World and you'll be able to ride the attraction and see pictures and get all kinds of great information about that as well. I'm going to have them on the show soon um, to talk about this as it gets a little bit closer to its release. I'll put a link up to that in the show notes again. That is mouseguest.com. Go and check them out as well as our podcast. And let's go ahead and play another voicemail and this one comes from a friend of the show and this is John. Here's John's voicemail. Hey, Lou, it's me, John, from the Mouse Times Podcast. I got a quick question for you. I was actually thinking about this. Why is it categorizes a ride as a classic ride? Is it a ride that, you know, uh, was there on opening day? Because Space Mountain is a classic ride, but it wasn't there on opening day. That opened up in 75. So I'm just kind of curious. So what, what is actually the, the actual characterization? Uh, uh, categorization of a ride from a regular ride to a classic ride. Just, you know, um, hopefully you could uh, definitely clarify that because uh, I was just kind of curious about that. Alright, thank you and love the show and I'll uh, definitely keep on listening. Talk to you later, Lou. Bye-bye. John, thanks very much for the question. John is from mousetimes.com. He has a podcast and a videocast. I suggest you go over and check that out. 
Now, onto your voicemail. I think this is a very interesting question, and I think this is probably something that could could spark some interesting discussion maybe on the forums. You know, what really is a classic ride? And I think for everybody, it might be something a little bit different. Uh, you know, I think, generally speaking, it's something that stands a test of time. It has a great repeatability factor. It appeals to most people on a number of levels. I think when you talk about classic attractions, some of the first things that probably come to mind are things like Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, they're 35 plus years old, but they still, you know, are close to the originals and and are still loved and embraced by people of every generation and of every age, whether it's your first time seeing it or it's your 500th time seeing it. And I think there's a number of attractions throughout the parks um, that do kind of fit that bill. I mean, I consider, uh, you know, the Wedway People Mover, and I, I still refer to it as that, as a classic attraction. It's simple. Um, there's not a lot to it, but there's something about it that I just love. And, and it's one of those that I must do each and every time I go. Yeah. There, and what's a great thing, too, is the ones that sort of represent they're are iconic in the area they're in. Like Space Mountain is more or less the premier spot in Tomorrowland. I mean, you know, Tomorrowland has changed over the years. They they refurbished it and kind of did a different thematic overlay in the mid '90s. But yet, um, Space Mountain just basically remained what it was. And it's it's something that even though it's just a simple roller coaster inside in the dark, it it, it represents so much nostalgia and so much sort of I, iconic. Disney World to so many people, just based on it, even just its, its architecture alone, and that's such a visual landmark. And let me just ask a, a somewhat rhetorical question. You know, does the attraction have to be relatively old to be classic? You know, is Big Thunder Mountain Railroad or Splash Mountain now, is that a classic attraction? Does it fall into that category? Oh, yeah, I, I agree, absolutely. I, I, Big Thunder Mountain, I consider to be a real... It's kind of a sleeper. I mean, people, it's, it doesn't have quite, you know the stature of something like Pirates or, or Haunted Mansion. But I think in the long run, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, if Westerns ever come back, there'll be a big Thunder Mountain movie. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not starring Eddie Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> the attraction tie-in, uh, you know. Is, what about what about other theme parks? You know, um, obviously you can say maybe something like Spaceship Earth over at Epcot or, or you know, would be a classic attraction. What about over at the studios or, or even Animal Kingdom? You know, is Everest going to be a classic attraction just because of its size and its prominence and its cost yeah that you know that's hard to say it's hard to say because you know you're you're, you're right about longevity i mean it's something that's going to you know take you know 10 to 15 20 years before we can can get to that point and it's and it's and the dynamics have changed so much i mean you know there's so i guess it's because there's just there's so much of a nostalgic nostalgia associated with the, the rise we're talking about that we consider classic you know, is something like Kilimanjaro Safari is going to be something that, you know, we're going to be waxing on philosophically, you know, 20 years from now. I, don't, I think that's a little different. I, I, I think, I don't, I don't know if things are going to become classics the same way they did before. All right. And again, does, the, does it, must a classic attraction appeal to everyone? Must kids and seniors and, and you know, people with, with special needs, must everybody be able to ride it to become a classic attraction? Or is it really just something that's subjective? You know, what you feel is a classic attraction is a classic attraction. Well, let's face it, Lou, in so many ways, Dumbo the Flying Elephant is a classic attraction. It is absolutely a classic. It is, you know, it was there at Disneyland the first day it opened, and it's, it's you know, every toddler in the world, it seems to be drawn to that, you know, the minute they can walk. Right. So it's, and the only it's every... And the one thing that, that kind of is persistent through all the attractions that we've named is that they really haven't changed much over time, other than Dumbo expanding the number of ride cars, you know, Pirates getting in the recent refurbishment, uh, you know, the, these attractions that we're talking about 
stand the test of time in their original form. And I guess that that is also an underlying element to all these as well. Oh yeah, and a perfect example of that. And it's it's kind of kind of an off the radar when you think about it, but then when you really put it in perspective, is Peter Pan's flight. Mm-hmm. I mean, there you have something that opened in 1955 at Disneyland, and really the ride mechanics, just the nature of the very ride itself, is not a whole lot different than it was over 50 years ago. And that's something that you know predates Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yet, look at it; it still is one of the most popular rides, you know, in the park. Right, and then that holds true for many of the Fantasyland attractions. Snow White; it's a small world. Clearly, I mean, yeah. unquestionably, you know, a, a classic attraction. You know, uh, de facto classic attraction. So, very interesting question. Um, I, I would love to hear other people again weigh in on this, either by calling the email, calling call the email. How about calling the voicemail instead, or by sending an email, or even better yet, go on and discuss this over at the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. I think we have time for one more email um, that I just saw that I really do want to get to. And it says, Lou, I'm presently stationed in Kandahar, Afghanistan. My wife and I have been going to Walt Disney World since 1993. We love Disney and have been such an enjoyment for me to hear what's happening at Walt Disney World being so far away from the parks. With WDW Radio, I really feel at home. And that's from uh, Jose Cuyar from Kandahar, Afghanistan. Jose, I, I... I saw this email, and I really, I don't know where to start. Um, I, I have to kind of, you know, get on my soapbox, and first, I have to thank you for emailing me and for listening to the show. I really appreciate it, and the fact that you're listening from so far away um, in Afghanistan blew me away to know that you kind of look at my show and kind of get a little bit of that Disney magic while stationed there really hit home for me. And I hope that, you know, the little bit that I do and everybody else that comes on the show does helps kind of brighten what's probably, you know, a very difficult time for you and your family. And this is not about politics. This is about people. I, I can't thank you enough for, for what you do and the sacrifices you make for, for us and, and people around the world. Um, you are a true hero, and, and your email really filled me, again, with a sense of pride and patriotism. And uh, I, I wanted to say thank you to you um, on the show because I, I really do appreciate it. And um, I hope you get back home to the States as soon as possible. And listen, if there's anything I could ever do for you, let me know. If you need copies of my books, whatnot, I'd be more than happy to send them out to you. And uh, hope that kind of helps you remind you of a little bit of a happier place than where you probably are. So, again, thank you very much for that email. I, I really, really do appreciate it. And Jeff, I think that um, that is going to do it because we are just out of time. I, again, I do apologize. I did not get to, to get to many more of your emails and voicemails. I do have a number of them that I do want to get played on the show and answered, and I promise in the coming weeks I will get to them. But don't let that stop you from emailing me or calling me. I do read and answer each and every email, even if it is not on the show. You can call the voicemail at 206 202 for WDW, email me at lou at wdwradio.com. Jeff, thank you again. Don't forget to go visit Jeff's blog at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. I'll put his link up in the show notes. Also, make sure you read Jeff's articles on my site as well as his blog post on his site as well. My pleasure, Lou. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks, buddy. That is going to do it for this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I want to thank you all again for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I also want to thank my special guests, Pam Forrester and Jeff Pepper, as well as Jonathan Dichter, for his April Fool's intro this week. Don't forget to get your entries in in our first Where in the World Have You Heard This contest. I played the clues on last week's show. That's March 25th, 2007, episode number seven. I played 10 clips from in and around Walt Disney World. 
identify those clips in order by Sunday, April 8th uh, at midnight. Enter for your chance to win a prize package courtesy of the Magic for Less Travel. It includes all kinds of great Disney goodies, including backpacks, neck wallets, trivia books, lanyards, and so much more. You can hear all the clues on our Episode 7 from March 25th, 2007. Good luck and have fun. For more information on how to get the most out of your money when planning a Walt Disney World vacation, as well as all kinds of great information and discounts, go over and check out themouseforless.com. I also want you to come by and visit the happiest forums on Earth at DisneyWorldTrivia.com, where we recently welcomed our 18,000th member into the family. I want to invite you to come on by, check it out, and join in on the fun, and be sure to look for the new site updates and keep an eye out for some other major changes coming to the site very soon, including over in the articles and trivia section. Speaking of coming soon... Work is progressing on my Mouse Tour audio CDs. These are going to be basically a series of CDs that I'm going to offer you an audio walking tour of Walt Disney World trivia and history. Uh, it's going to come out in a, ser- in a series of CDs. I look to have the first one out very soon. Visit DisneyWorldTrivia.com for more information on that as well. Please check out our show notes page, not only for more information and links and photographs relative to our discussions on this week's show, but for a link to some very cool photos sent to me by listener Michael Bonnet Jr. These were taken from the top of and the inside of Cinderella Castle, and many of the photos are from backstage areas near where Tinkerbell takes off on her nightly flight. They offer some amazing, unique views of the Magic Kingdom. These are not from inside the castle suite. They're from the opposite side of the castle, so go by the show notes page, check out that link. Michael, thank you again for sending that over. Speaking of show notes, head on over. Please check out the links to some other friends of the show and recommended sites and podcasts. I have the links on the show notes page for this week's and past shows as well. I do want to give a special hello and congratulations, though, to Mike and Jana from the Let's Talk About Disney podcast. Check out their live show from last week where they were awarded a night stay in the Cinderella Castle suite. I am really so happy for them and hearing her talk about it and the voicemail from Disney, you know, Get you a little verklempt. So um, congratulations to both of you. I look forward to hearing more details about your trip. Coming up on future shows, I have more Walt Disney World history and trivia segments with Jeff Pepper, more Voices Behind the Magic with Jonathan Dichter, more Best of the Best, continuing our Seven Wonders series, special guests, a few interviews I think you're really going to enjoy, and so, so much more. If you something that you want to hear, something that you enjoy, please go over and talk about it in the WDW Radio forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Call the voicemail anytime at 206-202-4WDW or send me an email to Lou at WDWRadio.com. Finally, don't forget about the cruise in November with me and Margaret Tinkerbell Carey, as well as your chance to win a $500 Disney gift card. Come by, visit our show notes page for more information. Again, please help spread the word. Thank you all for clicking on the dig button on the site as well as voting for us on iTunes. It is very much appreciated and very, very helpful. Keep those emails and voicemails coming. Please tune in again next week. Thank you all again for your time. See ya!